Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Adam. This is Chris. And this is Tim. And we're going to give our hot takes on the game that we just finished playing, Obsession. Hey, Adam, you know what I'm obsessed about? I'm obsessed about these poll results that I just found on Twitter. Speaking of obsession. Oh my gosh, I need to hear the results of this poll. <laughs> that, was, that was a terrible segue. Okay, so I posted a poll on Twitter, as I've been doing lately. Um, and uh, the question I asked was, what's your favorite way to consume board game reviews and other related content? I said almost all the board game content I consume is on podcasts because I can listen while I'm doing other things like cooking, running, or driving. And I offered four options. Number one was podcast. Number two is video. Number three was written. And my fourth was live stream, parentheses, Twitch. How do you guys usually use board game content? You know, reviews, playthroughs. What's your primary format? Well, for me, I'm kind of all over the board. I, I like to listen to kind of general conversations like the ones that we do on podcasts. Like you said, it's, it's something that you can do while you're doing other things. Uh, mowing the lawn or whatever. When it comes to playthroughs, obviously, I think the better way to do that is with video. So I think there's different, you know, different modes for different things. Which would, if you had to pick one from that result, though, what's your favorite? What, like, which would you pick? I think I pick podcasts. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I have a couple mainstay podcasts I'll go to, and then if I'm going to learn the rules for a game or watch a playthrough, then of course the video is always helpful to see what's going on. But yeah, podcast is my number one for board game content. I am interested though to hear about. Twitch. Have you done any twitching, Tim? That's like what the new kids are doing, right? I don't even know what's going on with the Twitch. Isn't that like the thing that Hannah Montana kind of originated? Oh, that's twerking. Never mind. <laughs> no, um, I haven't. I haven't. Who's this now? <laughs> I might have watched. Yeah, you know what? I, I've watched a couple live streams. Okay, so same thing with me. I usually do podcasts, but once in a while I'll watch a video, especially because how to plays work really well that way. You know, if you want to just actually see how a game works. That's hard enough to schedule the time to sit down and like watch something related to board games. I'd rather be playing board games, right? But then you got to schedule at a specific time to watch a live stream. That seems like a, oh, a lot of effort to uh, kind of consume board game pon- content. So I, yeah, I have not done that very much. No, I've heard this too. I've heard there's a lot of board game content on the TikToks. Is that how you say it, right? The TikTokers? <laughs> Did you say the TikToks? I think that's how you say it. I like watching videos on the YouTube. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of people are doing comedy stuff on TikTok. I think that's how you're going to, you know, some very short uh, kind of game intros and stuff like that are done on TikTok. Too. Okay. Here's what our responders said. Again, I don't, you know, I post this on our Twitter, so you can assume that most of them are maybe know who we are and what we do, so they might be listeners, but I do tag board games uh, the hashtag board game so this could go out to people that don't actually know what we do or listen to our podcast 43 percent said podcast was a preferred method 48 percent said video and nine percent said written and that leaves a big old zero percent for live streaming wow i'm surprised yeah i was kind of surprised too because it's funny like a lot of the big content creators now just put a lot of focus on live streaming like that is you know, they're constantly like, hey, we're about to go live in five minutes. Come join us, chat in. Mm-hmm. And so I assumed that there was a lot more people using that. But at least on our Twitter feed uh, or the people that respond to this, not many people are using that. Well, have either of you guys ever used that? Because of the of the four that you listed, that's the only one that I've never actually used. Yeah, I haven't used Twitch specifically, but there, there are sometimes like you can do like Facebook live chats and you can do or, you know, live streams. You can do like Google live and I've watched a couple, uh, like I did a board, board boys one time was doing a live playthrough of Everdell and I just happened to be sitting at my desk at the time. And I'm like, Hey, I'll jump in on that and chat with them a few minutes. And it was okay. It was interesting, but I actually have been live streamed on the Twitch. Oh, so this was during those, like the, uh, the dads on the map, the virtual convention, they just had a Twitch stream going infinity. The people wanted to see the game or kind of follow along or or whatever they could watch on the Twitch and was that on like Tabletop Simulator then? So they were like live streaming the, the TTS game. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what they did. Got it. Did you do you know how many people were watching while you were playing? Was there any like probably zero? I think <laughs> all of them. Yeah. yeah, funny. There must be some reason why people are talking about Twitch a lot. Maybe there's like monetary. Maybe you get money if uh, people show up or something. So there's a drive to to push right. that, but. Um, yeah, interesting. So I guess, yeah, not too surprising. Most of the people that responded, a lot of them were into podcasts. Obviously video is pretty popular, but again, unless it's for the purpose of learning a game, I usually don't really like to use it. 
Well, that's what we know about the way people are consuming board game content from our very small sampling of 23 votes today. Uh, Let's move into the conversation about Obsession. Here's the description. In Obsession, you're playing as 19th century British families that are competing to grow their reputation and marry into the wealthy Fairchild family. The game is played over 12 rounds. Each player will take one turn per round, where they will host an event at their estate, inviting guests, and trying to raise their wealth and reputation. At the start of the game, each player will start with one reputation, no money, and five basic rooms in their estate. They will also have one of each of five types of servants, and six cards that represent the gentry in their social circle. Four of them will be family members, and each player will start with two random guests. On a player's turn, they will pick one of the rooms in their estate at which to host an event. That room will require a specific type of servant and a certain number of gentry, and the gentry may be restricted by only ladies, gentlemen, or other restrictions. The player will move the required worker onto that room and will play gentry cards from their hand as required. Some of the gentry may also require specific types of servants to attend them, so the player will move that type of servant to the related gentry card. After meeting all requirements of the event, the player will take awards indicated on the played gentry cards in room. These will usually include benefits like gaining money, gaining reputation, recruiting additional servants, or recruiting additional guests, regular or prestige guests, from a deck on the central board. The player can then purchase a room upgrade from a central market if they choose and add it to their estate, which will open up additional events that they can host on a future turn. Then the player will move their unused gentry to a discard pile, move their used servants to the expended service section of their player board, and will flip over the room they just used, if it's the first time using it, which will slightly change the benefits on that room but will increase the endgame scoring points. At the start of their next turn, the expended servants will move to the servant's quarter space, and then on the following turn they will move back to the available service section on their player's board. So a particular servant can only be used once every other turn. Rooms and gentry cards do have minimum reputation requirements, so you will have to make sure to raise your reputation in order to take advantage of the most powerful gentry and rooms. If a player doesn't have the servants or gentry needed to take a turn, they can take a pass turn, where they will return all of the gentry cards into their hand, move all of their servants to the available service section of their board, and either gain some additional money or refresh the room upgrade market, and then they can buy a room upgrade. At the end of three rounds, a courtship round will occur, where the players will compare the victory points listed on all of their rooms of a specific type. The type is randomly chosen from a deck of cards at the beginning of the game and after each subsequent courtship round. The player with the most victory points of the chosen room type for that series of rounds will gain a random victory point card, which can either be discarded for a powerful effect or saved until the end of the game uh, to turn in for victory points. And then they will also get to add one of the two Fairchild Children Gentry cards, which have powerful effects into their hand until the next courtship phase. If two players tie in the courtship round, then they both receive a victory point card, but they will not get to court one of the Fairchilds. In the final courtship round of the game, the players will compare all four of the room types that were chosen during the course of the game, and the player that wins will get a VP card, but will also get to marry the Fairchild of their choice for an additional eight points at the end of the game. Then all players count up their points listed on their room tiles, on their gentry cards, count points for reputation, servants, and money, and points collected by meeting objective cards that were given earlier in the game and points on their VP cards, and the player with the most points is the winner. I didn't cover every rules detail, but that should give you a pretty good idea how to play. Obsession was designed by Dan Halligan and published by Kayanta Games. This was my pick tonight. I've been wanting to play this game for a very long time, and I've gotten a lot of pushback from my fellow podcasters, specifically Chris. I think Chris is literally thrown up every single time I've mentioned this this game and the theme on it. So, Chris, I want to start with you. Wait, before you jump in, I, I want you to talk a little bit about that pushback because I think you're going to get a lot of satisfaction out of my reaction. Yeah, you you basically um, constantly said you had no interest. You would rather it happen on a night when you weren't here, that type of thing. Well, it was the theme, I think, is what Chris is going for. The, the theme, I think, was repulsive to Chris and then maybe just dry. And is there any theme? Does Chris consider this a theme? I don't know. Man, what a jerk I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Chris, let's jump into the mechanisms and gameplay here. Well, I'm not going to talk yet about whether I liked it, because I think that's kind of the big reveal, right? Uh, But there were a lot of interesting mechanisms in this game. And there was, uh, you know, a couple of them that stuck out to me. Is that it's a worker placement game, but you have, I think it's in the version that we played, at least three or four different kinds of workers. You have valets or valets, depending on how you want to pronounce it. 
I'm forgetting all the names, but basically it was the butlers, housemaids, things like that. And each of them had different abilities. So you, basically you had cards that you were trying to play in order to, to get points, to make things happen, to get additional resources. And for each of those cards you wanted to play, then you had to have a certain type of, uh, a certain type of uh, servant available. So for example, if you had a, one of the cards you were trying, that you were trying to play was the, um, you know, going out for a fox hunt. It wasn't actually in there, but I'm just making that one up. That's a good one. Should be in there. Then you might have to have a, a footman. And if the gentlemen were joining in the fox hunt, then you'd have to have a valet for the, for the footman, which is a really interesting mechanism. But what I found interesting about it was that it wasn't necessarily the number of workers that you had. It was the type of workers you had because I had a whole bunch of workers, but I picked the wrong ones. So by the end, you know, three turns in, I was going, man, I have all these workers here and I can't even use them because they're the wrong kinds of workers. And I thought that was a really interesting mechanism. There is a whole lot of planning on this game, kind of trying to set yourself up for later turns that you don't generally have a lot of control over. That was kind of my feel about it. First of all, you almost never get to actually pick the um, visitors, the guest cards you're going to put into your hand. So you don't really know when you're getting a guest card what kind of worker it's going to need. And the upgrade tiles for your estate are pretty random. They change over the course of the game. Different ones are available. So yeah, obviously if you have a lot of a type of work, you could try to buy one. But usually buying based on the price or based on some other ability or based on the courtship benefit or whatever, unless on the on the workers. So I don't know. That was one of the areas that I thought there was a lot of random things are going to kind of come to me. And I have to kind of work with what I've got and, you know, move to them. But I can't really plan and say, I'm going to collect these workers over the course of the game and try to collect guests and, and estate improvements that really work well with those. It was more of a like, man, I can feel like I'm starting to get too many estate improvements that need this type of worker. I better collect some more. And then, wait, I've got a whole bunch of these workers. Why don't I try to get an estate improvement? You know, like it was a kind of a push and pull and it didn't feel, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of control over where things were going. And aside from just trying to adapt to what was happening, how did, did you guys feel like you could really maybe in a later play, could you plan a little bit better your strategy? Do you think, was that just me completely missing the ball here? I'm curious to hear what Adam has to say about that. Yeah, I'm totally with you guys on this. I thought the forward planning aspect was cool in theory. Like I want to be able to kind of look ahead and be like, oh, okay, I can do this and do this and plan this out and I can sneak this away and add it to my little establishment there and make things happen. But then at one point I just felt like, well, I okay, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this thing. I can't do this other thing I want to do. Uh, so I guess I'll do this one leftover thing that doesn't really help me much and I won't be able to do the thing I want to do in a couple turns. So that's, in theory, it's cool, but I couldn't make it happen. So your question, Tim, about would we be able to accomplish these things in future plays, I assume so, but right now I just feel like maybe not. Yeah, my answer to your question, Tim, is absolutely. I mean, I even by the end of the game, I was going, if I had you know understood the game better at the beginning, then I could have done a much better job than I did. And so I think that it, your familiarity with the game would help a great deal there. And you certainly could do a much better job of planning. I mean, obviously, there's still an element of luck and you're going to draw the cards you do. But I think once you get into the game, get used to it, learn kind of what the distribution of cards is, then you can kind of start seeing the patterns that are developing in your hand and amongst the tiles that you want to use and use that to, to plan your game ahead. Yeah, okay. You're probably, you're probably right about that. Now, um, I did really like the fact that there was something you could kind of plan for. And that was that over the rounds, there were some certain rounds that did unique things. And you could kind of set yourself up to try to plan. I didn't do a very good job this game. But for example, there were the fair rounds. So if you turned over the one tile on your board, then you could kind of get some extra income on those rounds. You could kind of prepare at the beginning. Hey, I want to do this by the third round to take advantage of that. And then there was like the extra builder round. So if you gained up a lot of money over a couple turns you had a shot at kind of gaining a couple tiles at the same time. Again, I didn't do that very well. And then the, the one round that let you play any level of prestige character or use any prestige upgrade, regardless of whether you were there. So there were there were some kind of cool things that you, you could plan for, which was to try to set yourself up for those rounds. And they came up quickly. So I definitely think you could prep for those because those are going to be there. You know they're coming up. I, I just forgot about them until we got right on top of them most of the time. But I think, you know, that was kind of interesting. Well, you say the game moved quickly. I'll say it did move quickly and it did move quickly. I felt like per round, it took forever to get back to my turn. I felt like 
again, who knows if that's clunkiness or us just getting familiar with the system. But then, yeah, by the time these like little village fair came up or the courtship time came up, I was like, oh, man, I didn't have enough time to do the stuff I wanted to do. And again, that's probably mostly my fault more than anything. <laughs> but that's kind of my sense of the, again, the forward planning on that. This is one of those games where I felt like I was just struggling, struggling to stay afloat a little bit. I had that sense of kind of panic and not being able to get stuff done and not really, yeah, not really get anything done I wanted to get done. You know, I think the reason why it feels like it takes a long time to get back to your turn, this is one of those games that you are just really not that invested with what the other players are doing. Yeah. You know, you're a little bit invested. You're watching what they're buying because you want to fight for the courtship benefits. But other than that, there's really no reason to even be looking at anyone else's turn other than the thematic elements, which is the one thing that actually was fun about watching what other people were doing. And depending on how much they talked about the event they're doing and, you know, like, oh, hey, I'm sending Lord Winthrop over to the tennis courts today to play some poker or whatever. It's kind of fun to just kind of watch that thematic thing come together on other people's turns. But if you're planning your own hand or, you know, just trying to figure out what you're going to do on your turn, you kind of, you know, you miss that. And then there's no reason to pay attention to what they're doing mechanically for the most part. Right. Right. In, in that sense, it reminds me a lot of some of the more solitary games like Wingspan, where you're really focused on your own player, Matt, and not so much on what others are doing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, were there any other mechanisms that stood out, anything you liked or didn't like? There's there's a couple things, and they, they kind, of, kind of dovetail with each other. One of them was I thought the objective cards were a little bit difficult to navigate. You start out with two objective cards, and then later on you get an opportunity to get a third objective card you know, about, I don't know, a third of the way through the game, which I thought was useful having a little sense of what's in your hand before you actually pick the objective card. But for example, in my my hand, I had one objective card that required me to have two different building tiles. One of them I started with. And so I thought, well, that'd be an easy one for me to get the second one. So I got that card and it got me nine points. The other was a requirement to have three different building tiles and you got 12 points. And I thought, well, that sounded great. But throughout the course of the entire game, only one of those actually ever came up. So it seemed a little bit overly restrictive. Now, maybe if they had, you know, there was a little bit more of, uh, you know, flexibility in those cards, like you could have these two, you know, they were similar, like there was a couple of different kennel cards, if you could have either of them, but, you know, that wasn't the case. And so it, it felt a little bit like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bet on what cards are going to become available later which didn't actually plan out for me chris did, did you think about discarding that card in the opportunity there was an opportunity like round five to discard one of your one of your cards if you hadn't seen any of the tiles at that point did you think like hey this may not happen for me so i'm just going to dump it no that's a good point point. and in retrospect i would have done that a lack of understanding the rules very well but yeah that would have been a smart thing for me to do yeah i, th- I actually really like the objective cards but that's just an element of games that i like i like when there's little things to go for i like little goals like that and the fact that they shifted a little bit during the game was fun for me my objectives were fairly easy to get but they weren't worth a lot of points so maybe that's why it made me feel that way i think that's one of the things you probably have to balance out over multiple plays is that thing's worth 12 points but you're pushing your luck a little bit are you actually going to be able to get it maybe not yeah um so you know I, i think that's something that maybe would feel a little bit more even over future games but personally i enjoyed it all the objective cards i saw you know the the five i started with and you discarded two and then the two I picked up and discarded one, every one of them seemed like it would be a fun, if sometimes challenging, uh, goal to hit. And in retrospect, I think I could have hit any of them. But most of mine weren't focused on specific tiles. Only one of them were. Mm -hmm. And I noticed most of when we kind of compared our objectives at the end of the game, most of your guys' objectives were focused on getting one or two or three specific tiles. Those ones can be potentially impossible to get. If, you, if they just don't right. happen to show up or somebody else picks up that tile before it comes around to your turn. So kind of interesting uh, the way those played out. I wasn't too enchanted by the objectives here. It's like Chris said, you could get, try to get these three scarce building tiles and get big time bonus. Or you could try to build like as many pink buildings as you could and you get one per pink. Seems easy, but maybe you could get four or five points for that, which seems like a super low bonus for the amount invested and going for a specific color of tile. So I, I don't know, I wasn't super taken with the objectives. Do you guys have anything else to say about that? I was going to flow into the interaction here. Go for it. The courtship rounds is really kind of where there's interaction. So a color comes up, and if you have the most points in that specific color tile, then you get to court. So there's a bit of a race element there, but again, you have to time it right. You have to be in the right spot in turn order to be able to buy the right tile and get that on your tableau that you're working on. So again... I felt like I was never really 
in the running, nor did I have much agency to become in the running for any of those courtship tiles. Maybe I just missed out and I wasn't paying attention hard enough, but that's kind of my sense that I had. What about you guys? What's your take on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that there is very limited interaction here. And the courtship was very, fairly luck-based. But the one area that I think you can plan for was for the final round because you know that those are building up. So even if you miss it in the first round, like in this case, the service one in the first round, you could potentially continue to focus on those tiles because you know that's going to help you towards the end game score. There is an opportunity to kind of plan for the end game, which was the most valuable courtship round because you don't only get the victory point, but you also get the eight points on the fair child or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, the fair child that you marry. So, you know, there was a little bit there, but I agree. It didn't feel like you had a lot of control over whether you were going to be able to get that tile. Yeah, you want, you're watching what other people were doing, but it, it, it wasn't a lot of that. The other couple of places we talked about interaction while we were playing was that you can potentially hire one of the workers from another person. So there's a little bit of opportunity there. Um, and, you know, potentially you could even really mess somebody's round up. Like if you saw, as you get to know the game, you could start to be like, hey, Chris is going to try to turn that tile over so that he can, you know, so that it's the right tile to hit the theme for the courtship phase, but he needs the red worker there. If I can steal his red worker this time, he actually can't do that, you know? So I think there's an opportunity to interact a little bit more once you get to know the game, but it's not, it's not heavy. This feels, this actually feels like a game that I think would almost be better solo. Like there's almost nothing. The rule book even says, I I read over the, the solo rules, and it basically said, you're basically doing your own thing here. So that's why you can play the solo, you know, and I assume you just play against a high score or something like that. I don't think that there's a lot of AI needed to run that solo experience from what I could tell. I don't disagree with anything you said there, but I did want to point out something that I found very interesting, which is, uh, I think, Adam, you had commented about uh, you know, people talking about what, you know, Lord Wigglebottom is going to the tennis court today or something like that. <laughs> and... More than I think any other game that we've played on game night, people were doing that. People were saying, oh, well, I'm sending Lady Rumble Muffin off to, you know, off to the market today to go meet her friend, blah, blah, blah. It was kind of funny, you know, actually having people get into the the storyline of it that much. And I know that doesn't exactly equal player interaction in the same way that, say, a Dudes on the Map game does. But I thought it was really interesting that we were all in, we were all talking about our story. And I think we were all listening to it, too, because it was pretty amusing. It was pretty entertaining. And that's a lot of fun. This game has a very specific theme, and it doesn't have a theme that a lot of other board games have. And it pushed the theme to the max. Like, every action that you did, every name, every word everything drove the theme this is a theme driven game versus a mechanics driven game with some some mechanisms on it that actually are fairly unique or interesting or an interesting mix of of mechanisms but i agree that the the theme helped the game and i think that's what the game is really all based around hey i have a question for you guys do you feel like there was a lot of repetition in the building tiles i felt like by hour number three entering the third hour the you know the final third of the game we were just doing the same thing over and over again. And I was just like, eh, yeah, whatever. Here we go again. <laughs> same thing. What about you? What about you, Tim? No, I didn't. I didn't really. I mean, there was a few repetitions. I don't know how many there were. So it didn't feel too repetitive to me. The effects were not too drastically different. I mean, if you look at the five different types of tiles, the brown tiles, the first ones, those ones essentially just let you use more guest cards, more cards out of your hand. So if you just wanted to use a bunch of card effects, you'd use that first one of the tiles in the first row. The second tiles, which were the blue ones, the service tiles, those either gave you more workers or they let you kind of change what the workers could do. So pretty basic. The third section helped you recruit more people for your hand. The fourth section gave you more prestige and the fifth section gave you more money. So there is some repetition in the fact that no matter what tile you bought in one of those sections, they basically did the same thing. I could understand why that maybe felt repetitive but thematically you know they were named differently they were giving you different events they tried to tie that in thematically as to whether you're using the gentlemen or the ladies or any gentry and how many but i want to dig deeper into that i want to talk a little bit more about what was missing there when we talk about production but anyway chris were you thinking that they were too repetitive yeah and and that's a situation where i don't know if this is because we just happened to get a bunch of repetitive tiles because it was one play of a game or if there really is a lot more variety. But I felt like by the end of the game, there was I had seen the same tile five or six times, which probably is not true. Maybe it was just similar tiles. And then there was a, um, a round toward the end 
where I think every tile out there was brown, which is, you know, it's a very limiting ability to to buy things out of the market, except for one low cost green card. And so it, it felt like there was a lot of there, there, really limited opportunities there. Now, I know that there is an opportunity to reset the market and maybe that isn't you know, something that I could have taken advantage of. But, you know, you also didn't want to spend your resources to reset the market if you didn't have to. So that might be something that I'd learn to live with after a couple plays of the game and to understand better the flow of the tiles throughout. So maybe it was just this one this one play. But I did feel like that was a little bit limited. All right. So I want to just talk about the one mechanism. I, I haven't sounded probably too enthusiastic here about the game so far. But I want to say that there is a whole bunch of things here that actually worked well together. Maybe in some areas it didn't feel like you had a lot of opportunity to plan for it, but it was the opportunity to constantly try to shift and move around and deal with different things. And the way the mechanisms all played out, there was a tight economy in prestige and a tight economy in money and a tight economy in the cards you have available and trying to hold out that that whole round so that you don't have to take a pass round and completely miss a turn, but also trying to target the right events at the right time when the rounds were coming up. I actually found that a lot of these things tied together really well and made an interesting puzzle to me, regardless of the fact that there were some things that, that weren't super exciting about it as well. Adam, do you have anything else to make, mention on mechanisms? No, I just agree with you. I do like that, you know, that aspect of being able to plan and pivot and try to go for this and go for that. I, I think it's just a function of first play for me. I was just always a day late and a dollar short on all of those kind of events. So I just was... Okay just frustrating for me in this case. Chris, anything else? Just that I agree with what you just said. And usually you're the one talking about the puzzle and shifting with the puzzle. And when I, I actually found that to be a really attractive part of this game because I did see yeah. that there were so many different directions you could go. And more than so many games that we've played, I feel like this is a game where a couple more plays and I would enjoy it more after a couple mm -hmm. plays, more than I did this time. Because mm -hmm. for me at least... I, there's enough complexity in the scoring in the scoring mechanisms that I felt like going into this, I really had no clue whatsoever how endgame scoring was going to happen. And part of that was my own lack of preparation. So I, you know, I own some of the blame on that. That's not the game. But I really felt like this is one where, you know, a couple of games and then you could really start putting together a strategy and understand the cards that are potentially going to become available and what the value of different things is. And and I think that would make a huge difference. I want to touch on something you just said, Chris. The in-game scoring here was very satisfying to me. It made a lot of sense. Aside from mm. the, yeah. the the kind of difficult objective cards, which I already touched on, everything else, the amount of, uh, like, you know, what do we call them, cheap friends and expensive friends that you could, uh, you could bring into your group, mm. and then the types of buildings, the stuff you had in your tableau, the tiles in your tableau, you got points for this. So the stuff you scored for it made a lot of sense to me, and that was just very a very satisfying in-game scoring. It made a lot of sense. It wasn't weird or confusing or convoluted. It was straightforward and it felt like justified the way they, they assigned points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what kind of pulled it all together in the end for me was that all the different actions that we were doing and all the challenges we were going through did all make sense from a scoring perspective. And there were, you know, there were all, there were some very different but valid routes to get points here. The other thing I thought was pretty cool about it is that the scoring mechanisms were all very thematic, right? The whole point of the game is you're trying to build up your estate and social climb and build your reputation. So where do you get points? You get points for having the most interesting friends. You get points for building up the best estate, for you know, kind of adding on your estate, for having money at the end, for having the most servants. All things that in 19th century England society you would get credit for. So I think that that was all really fun and thematic outside of the objective cards, which had no real thematic link, but just a direction. gave people a push, you know, kind of a drive for doing specific things, which I, again, I like those. So I'm glad they were there, but that was probably the only piece that didn't really fit in thematically. Again, going back to the objective cards, I had that objective like, all right, I'm going to go for these buildings. I'm going to go for these crazy. That's why I bought this. I kind of shot myself in the foot. I went and bought a prestige level four building and then it just sat there. I couldn't use it. You know, I should have started with some twos or threes that allowed me to slowly work my way up. But I went for this number four and I, it just sat there. I couldn't use it for the majority of the game. Those objective cards gave me a direction to go in, but maybe that was a bad direction to start off heading. And maybe I should have waited for that second round of objective cards to, to keep something like that. Yeah, and, and probably that's something you would learn in a later game is to say, exactly. like, I have to weigh how much value does this objective have for me? Like, there's some points there, but maybe it's not the right way to spend my early resources. Let exactly. me actually do something else with it. Well, why don't we jump in and talk about the production and I'll get in a little bit more on the theme here. 
I want to start with my one kind of big complaint on the production. It's got a Beyond the Sun issue going on with it. It could have been so much more fun if there was art on the estate upgrade tiles that made you feel like you're building up your estate. Like when you're adding a lawn, you get to see the lawn there. When you flip it over and it's a different event, you get to see people playing cards in the lawn versus playing tennis on the lawn. And there's plenty of space on the tiles. They didn't have that much to represent what it was doing. So just a little bit more of an actual visual link to me building up an estate and doing these activities, I think would have really added a lot of flavor and fun to the game. And instead it's pretty bland. It just feels kind of prototypey type of components, solid colors with a little bit of text basically on it. And so very clear to read. It's very much like Beyond the Sun. They went for function over form here and maybe that was the right decision for it. It made it very easy to understand and play, but I do feel like it could have benefited from a little bit more visual addition to all the other thematic elements that are going on there. What did you guys think? Did, did that bother you at all? Or do you feel like that was that, that that's a, nonsense complaint absolute nonsense (laughs) now i i this is so funny because usually i'm the guy talking about production and theme and whatnot and i completely disagree with you on that i felt like this game was so true to its soul which is you know victorian england the main component that you interact with is these little cards and each one has a visitor on it or a friend or whatever you want to call them and they have a, a little picture and there's a little, a little name and a description and the color commentary is wonderful. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, it's amusing. It's full of personality. I, I do agree with you that they, if they had found a way to make it more visually, thematically cohesive, you know, like actually building up your estate in a more graphic way, I think that would be incredible. I think that would actually make it even more fun, but it didn't bother me not having that. That's fine. And that's the only thing that I had because I thought the the guest cards, the visitor cards worked great. You know, like the the style of them, the art, the, the flavor text on them was so, it was fun. It was a blast to have that all in there. It was just to me, the estate tiles felt so bland. And that's part of what I think made them feel repetitive, right? You see a bunch of brown tiles and they just look like brown tiles. Yeah. You have to read the little text to know what that area is in your state and what activity you're going to be doing with it. So I think if it, if it actually represented that a little bit and saw, hey, I'm building up my state. And so you can see the dining room building out. And you can see the, you know, the drawing room building out. And then you can see the lawn getting bigger. Like that would have been just cool to see that stuff actually happening so that was to me the one thing i felt like was missing a little bit or even maybe just having you know a, a little a little picture of a croquet yard when you know when you put out the croquet yard or so the stables or something like that that's all i mean but you know like you would have seen your estate growing because you know all the green ones would have been you know just extending the lawn and all that you know mm-hmm. yeah that's all just little pictures of those things that would have made you feel like you kind of building up your estate yeah what do you think adam I th- the guest cards and the, the flavor text on those cards is absolutely charming. Like, I want to look at those people, read all about them. Are they real people? Like, they look like they're stock photos. I don't know who they are, but I want to find out if they're real people and what their lives are like. And I want to go, like, hang out with them and, like, see how gossipy this person is or how, like, stern this colonel is. I, they're just fascinating. It's a captivating part of the game. But now that you say about the tiles, Tim, and the lack of art on them, it's so true. Like, I didn't really notice it during the game. I just felt myself just being turned into a bland noodle. (laughs) And then now that you say, like, there could have been art on these cards, I'm like, yes, there could have been. Why wasn't there people in Victorian dresses, like, playing lawn tennis? Or it would have been awesome. Like, show me some more of these characters from the cards on these tiles doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. How awesome would that be? It would be fantastic. So I didn't notice it while we were playing, but once you pointed it out to him, I completely agree. Well, any other um, you know points on the on the production you guys want to talk about? I just want to go back to theme again because you know, normally when I think theme, I'm thinking. I mean, when you're talking about the production, how they could improve it, I'm thinking, well, what are you going to do? You have like minis of like you know Lord Dumbledore or whatever, and, and in this game. <laughs> I part of part of the reason that I gave you such a hard time about this is because I, that that is the most bland, dry, uninteresting theme that I could possibly imagine. I have zero interest in Victorian England. I I don't read Jane Austen, but as we started playing, actually before we even started playing it, as I was watching the playthrough video of it, I started feeling like I felt when my wife was watching through the Downton Abbey series, and I was like that show sounds so incredibly boring to me. And then after like, you know, a couple of episodes of like me sitting on the couch reading while she's not, I'd be like, 
what's Carson up to this week? You know, what's he, you know, what, what's <laughs> happening there? You know, what's Mosley going, what's going on with Mosley? You know, and, and these things. And as we started playing the game, I, I got so reeled into it. I was so charmed by all of this that I was, I was so excited to play this game. And I think that is a masterful way in which they took what could have been an incredibly bland, boring motif in my opinion, I mean, other people obviously feel differently about, you know, Victorian England and turned it into such a personality filled, charming game. And that's not exactly a a production aspect, but I guess in a way it is because it's about the flavor text and about the, the theme as it plays throughout the game, you know, and it melds well with the mechanisms. So as you progress along the track, you have, I think it was two or three courtship rounds where you get to take borrow basically one of these really high powered cards that ultimately someone's trying to marry one of these two people is a a man and a woman and then at the end you sort of add up the points and who had basically who had the most successful dates ends up marrying that person and just little things like that that just melded the theme and the the mechanisms together so well and to me that is the height of of board game artistry and i i really enjoy that I thought it was pretty cool that you guys all courted the uh, these two characters, and I was the one that married one of them at the end, even though I didn't court anybody. So, I, you know, I just kind of rushed in at the end. I think they were getting, they're starting to worry about becoming spinsters, and they weren't, they weren't going to wait around for you guys, so they just jumped into my arms. That's hard to say no to, t- hard to say no. Sometimes it's the ga- the dashing man who comes in at the last moment and sweeps everybody off their feet. Were you, maybe, maybe you're the scoundrel. <laughs> yeah, probably the scoundrel. <laughs> There's going to be a bunch of drama coming in and get gossip in a couple couple years there. Um, yeah, no, the, th- the theme was so fun and if you again if you look at it like every single piece okay so what are you doing on a turn you're setting up an activity so you set up cards in the drawing room send two of your gentry there so you're saying like oh well lord bishop and lady sinatra are going over to hang out and play cards in the drawing room and so these characters that you're interacting with are, are telling stories you're having these stories happen with every event but the mechanics of it actually worked so you got this thematic thing that's happening mechanically you've got basically a story-based game that's being driven by the mechanisms of the game. I 100% agree. Like I said, the one complaint that I had, I just wanted to get that out of the way first because I think otherwise thematically and production-wise even, I think this all works really well. It was a a first-time game by a designer, first-time publisher, self-published, not big budget, low production capacity here. And they did a really great job of bringing this theme and, and all the elements through. The individual servants, their different colored and shaped meeples all worked. You know, like you could just picture your butler going out and buttling, just doing the things that they do. And it just worked. I really liked most of the production. Theme is really what makes this game special. Chris, anything else on production? No, just that I love the fact that you managed to work the word buttle into a conversation. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Well, let's talk about favorite moments of the game or moments that stood out to us. Um, Adam, why don't you start? One thing about this game is a noticeable lack of interesting moments. There was no big moments for me, nothing that I was like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. It was all just very mellow, puzzle-solving, courting if there's going to be some courtship involved, like have somebody throwing rocks at the window. Have John Cusick out there with a boombox blaring up music, professing his love to somebody. Like there was just, there was nothing dynamatic about the courtship involved in this entire game. So that's one thing that was notably missing for this game for me. Chris, any counterpoint there? Well, just that, you know, John Cusack, boombox, this is not anachrony. This is... Uh, <laughs> This is obsession. You know, I, well, I, I did have a very notable moment, and it was thanks to that scoundrel Adam, uh, who obviously, you know, was uh, so above above things that he didn't even notice it. But so I was planning, this is like toward the end of the game, we're like getting toward the, you know, the very final rounds of things. And I was planning this masterful move. I mean, this is going to be one of these things where I throw out you know, six of my gentry onto a card and I'm going to be getting resources like left and right. It's going to be crazy. And I start putting my cards out and I'm like, wait, where's that, where's that housekeeper that I was, that I was going to use. And I was like, 
yeah, I was just talking to these guys about how I'm taking your housekeeper away from you. Because you can do that. That's one of the few places where you can really interact with your fellow players. You can steal away their hired help, which I guess is, you know, just like in real Victorian England. And he did that. And it completely, completely changed that hand for me, that round. And I just, I mean, it was is actually a, a masterful move by Adam. I don't know if you realized how impactful it was going to be, but it, uh, it, it killed that move for me. And um, it was very memorable, I will say. So I, I had to uh, nicely done. I had to earn that third place finish, Chris, and that's that's how I did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, nicely done, nicely thank done. You, thank you. What Tell about, about you, Tim? you, Yeah, I had a whole bunch of moments that I enjoyed in this game. Um, you know, really every turn, it felt like a fun little plan. You know, something to plan around, and and I got to enjoy the thematic element of sending these people over to do this event and use the right staff and everything, and hope you know, like plan for the next turn. And I do think it would even be more fun on a future game where I kind of, you know, thought knew a little bit more how the different mechanisms were going to kind of come together and you could plan around it. But as far as moments, there's a whole bunch to me. Like it was me just constantly, who can I try to get ahead of for courtship here? Oh, someone took that last tile that I wanted. Sometimes there were frustrating moments. There were definitely some frustrations for me related to the luck of the, you know, the tiles that were available based on the courtship rounds as the theme of it. But then by the end of the game, it felt like, okay, wait a second though. You know, I just kind of kept pushing my game forward. And because I just had built enough things, even if I didn't hit those early courtship rounds, I still ended up getting to marry the uh, the prince at the end or the the count or whatever his name was. It was okay to me at the end. It, it kind of those frustrations were like, they were minor. They were minor setbacks, felt like a big deal at the time, but it was constantly like working around those things. Do I have a very specific moment to call out? No, I don't think so. But But there were a lot of moments. <laughs> there were a lot of small moments that were fun to me. You know, like there was nothing that was just like, hey, that ruined my night or got me so excited for the night. Uh-huh. No, you know what? I will call I will call out. The final courtship round, I had not been able to court somebody the whole game. And we got to the final courtship round and counted up the, all the points. I was kind of counting as it was getting around everybody else's turn. I was the first player that round. And I counted my buildings and I started looking at everyone else's buildings. I was like, their upgrades are not worth that many points. And I was so excited that I was going to actually get to win a courtship and get the marriage at the end. And, and you know, so that was fun. It was just like a kind of a big surprise event for me, considering I thought I was doing poorly the whole game. So there's my there's my moment. I do have a moment in retrospect. And this is kind of how the game went for me. I didn't realize it was a moment until after the fact. So uh, after I stole Chris's purple meatball, Chris goes on to buy a brown tile which got him the oh, courtship yeah. victory. Yep, so right. back in my face. So that was pretty good. And all of a sudden, Chris <laughs> like, check it out, sucker. I got the courtship. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know I was in the running for the courtship. <laughs> Congratulations to you. So that's kind of how the game went for me. I, I guess I was just clueless. Maybe that's what happened in this game. I was just clueless playing this thing and didn't really know what was going on. It was, it was a little obfuscated for me. And what do they call it? Obtuse, I guess. I was obtuse and the game was obtuse to me, I think is kind of how... It went. All right. Well, would you guys ask to play this game again? I'm going to start on this one. I don't know. I really liked the theme. I I went into this game really excited about it because I am a fan of that era, Victorian era, high society drama. I love Jane Austen novels. I love Henry James. I love all kinds of historical fiction around that era. It's a, it's fun to me. Like the story element that comes with that era that you wouldn't get today. And, and I like it. So I was excited about a game that actually had this theme in it and it carried through, you know, it brought that theme out and I'm so glad it did. Mechanically, I liked some of the mechanisms and I do think I would like them more on a, on a subsequent play, but I did feel like I was pretty lacking in control here. It felt like a lot of it was just like, what's available to me, I'll work with it. That's okay, I don't mind it. You know, I've mentioned before, I like a shifting tactical puzzle, but this one didn't, I don't know, it didn't feel like there was really much I could even do to respond a lot of the time other than just to kind of react and say like, okay, well, I can see I can't do anything this round. Let me see what I can maybe set myself up for next round. But by next round, everything's changed again. So I'm not sure that I felt like there was a lot of agency in what you were doing. I think there is. I think there's definitely opportunities to learn that and optimize it, but it definitely left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth mechanically. 
I think this is going to be one of those games, though, that a couple nights from now I'll be rethinking through this play. And I'll be thinking through, like, ooh, if I had this to get got to play this again, I would love to do that. Because I've had this feeling before after a game, similar games, and then really wanted to go back to them. And I, I think that's what's going to happen here. So it's hard for me to answer today if I'm going to be requesting to play it again. And I may not. I may think back on it and be like, that was just a frustrating experience. I don't want to come back to it. Or I may think back and say like, oh man, I really want to try that again and try to beat the puzzle this time and try to get ahead of those things that are shifting before you can control it. So I'm not sure. Uh, right now it's kind of a up in the air. I, if, if it came to the table again, I would be happy to play it and then I'd like to see how it grows on me. But otherwise, I think it's just going to really come down to how my feelings change with, with a little bit of um, hindsight behind me. What about you, Chris? Let me ask you a question first. Um, one of the things that when we were talking about mechanisms, I, I failed to mention, but I think is worth mentioning, is that aspect of the game that you're just talking about, the lack of control. And it really, to me, that distilled down into the uh, the, the friend cards, which you, you live and die by your friend cards. And that's really such a critical piece of the game. And unlike so many other games where that's the case with, you know, uh, Blood Rage or Terraforming Mars or what have you, there's no draft. There's no ability to choose between cards to sort of pick your strategy. And in this game, I thought that that was a bit of a weakness that I could see. Now, I don't know how this would affect the rest of the game, but I could see a scenario where it would be much more satisfying. Say you draw two cards and you pick one of them and you put the other one back. It would create an ability to strategize a little bit more deeply than than you could in the way that we played the game. Do you do you think that's the case, or do you think that would have helped? I don't know because you know actually some of the abilities. So there were some cards. I had a card in my hand that let me draw two and discard one, and then I had a, a tile out that let me draw two and discard one. So they mm-hmm. let you use that to some limited effect. Um, and there are there are a lot of games where I don't even mind the random draw at the top and just making the best mm-hmm. of it. So that wasn't even the part that bothered me. I think the part that I didn't like as much that I felt like we had less control over was the random tiles that came up, the fact that by the time some came around to you and the tiles were so important to the courtship rounds, which felt like an important part of the game. Maybe it, maybe they were not as much important as I gave them credit for, but it felt like I had zero control over whether I could win a courtship. I couldn't make yeah. any decisions that would help me in that, at least until you were thinking about the final round. Um, and that's what sour, what felt a little sour to me. There are other games that have that element of where you're just drawing random cards and doing what the best you can with it. And I really enjoy those. So that wasn't, you know, with these cards, they didn't feel like they were that different. You know, like you draw a card off the pile and you're either going to get prestige or money or you're going to recruit another person. And they might be different point values or different amounts of those things, but they weren't drastically different effects uh, to where that bothered me. So I don't know. I don't think that would have changed it for me. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So to answer the question, uh, you know, every once in a while we come across a game that not only would I say, yes, I want to play it again, but I really want to play it again. Mm. And this is one of those games. Uh, actually, another one we had not too long ago, Rap Gods is the same the same situation, where I get done with the game and I'm like, I could sit down and I could play another game of that right now. In a large part because I felt like I did not fully understand the mechanisms of the game when we sat down to play it the first time. Now... I recognize that a huge part of this may be that I was so charmed by the theme of it. And that may not carry through for a whole lot of games. That may get me that may get me through another game or two of it. And then it may start getting old. But at least at this point right now, I really want to sit down and play this game again. The other thing that really influences me is that, uh, you know, my wife has never watched a uh, BBC PBS costume drama that uh, that she didn't love. And this is a game I could see us having a great time playing. So certainly if, if the, if the uh, theme of this game is something that's very interesting to you, there, there's so much going on there that it makes it feel like you're watching a drama that I think that could carry you through as well. So in short answer is yes, absolutely. I want to play it again. I'm actually thinking about buying it. I enjoyed it so much. Whether or not that's going to be a long-term conclusion, like it's one I want to keep playing over and over and over again, like a Terraforming Mars or a Tapestry or Cthulhu Wars, remains to be seen. But at least right now, I am completely smitten. I love it. That's amazing. What is happening tonight? Things are all going crazy. I don't understand who I'm talking to. This is nuts. Cat, cats and dogs living together. <laughs> For me, the I was charmed, absolutely charmed by the theme of this game. And I didn't think I would have been. Like... I hear about this theme and I'm just, who cares? I don't care about this theme. But when I got down to playing the game, the cards were just 
charming. But by, again, that latter third of the game, the mechanisms just were boring. It wasn't any kind of crescendoing effect for me. So could I be pulled into another game of this? Yeah, I think it's worth another shot. But will that ever happen? Will I ever request it? Probably not. But if the game is there and Chris buys it and we're hanging out, then I would definitely give it another shot with Chris or whoever. But I don't think I would request to play this one again. So that's where I am sitting at after my first play of Obsession. Adam, I'm really sorry to hear that because this was your birthday game night and we played a game that you absolutely didn't <laughs> enjoy. So that's a bummer. I I still had a great time. You can see I'm wearing these goofy clothes, having <laughs> this fantastic drink, and uh, I had a great time tonight. Since the listeners can't actually see what we're talking about, uh, Adam actually dressed up in his his period costume for this game tonight. And I actually think he looked more like an 80s rock star like Robert Palmer than a Victorian <laughs> gentleman. But I thought that even looked cooler than what you intended. No, it works. He's got the he's got the dark tie on with the white shirt and the pop, the collar popped up. So it could either go 80s rock star or Victorian, um, you know, like. Yeah, Jeff, very true. But, but I think it, it works. It works great. Robert Palmer is transgenerational. I'll take that. Right <laughs> that guy's a legend. Perfect in any generation, any era. <laughs> All right. Well, that will probably wrap up our conversation on obsession tonight. We've got different levels of obsession going on about this game. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's go ahead and move on to our next segment where we're going to talk about some things uh, we've been playing or getting excited about this week right after this. All right, welcome back. So before we jump into some games we've been playing, Chris, tell us a little bit about the theme cocktail. Boy, so this week we were drinking the deliciously named Sherry Cobbler. That's not Cherry Cobbler, that is Sherry Cobbler, which was a actually a bit of a conundrum. See, in Victorian England, cocktails weren't the big deal that they are today. Or even that they were in America at that time, where a lot of the heavy lifting in the cocktail revolution was actually being done. See, for the British aristocracy, it was all about the wine. England wasn't a wine producing region, which meant that all the wine that was there was imported. And that of course meant that all the wine was expensive. And that meant that wine was a status symbol. And if there's one thing that I've learned from playing Obsession and watching Downton Abbey, it's that it is all about the social status. So in the world of Obsession, uh, the Earl of Cavendish would probably have busted out his finest French wine when trying trying to impress his pal, the, uh, the Viscount Wessex. But tonight, the cocktail that we were drinking may very well have been something that he would have enjoyed in the more informal environment, hanging out with his friends at the local gentleman's club. And he may have been introduced to it by another gentleman of the time named, wait for it, Charles Dickens, who's also the namesake of one of the variations in this game. So Dickens visited the United States in 1842, and as he captured in his American Notes for General Circulation, he was quite taken with the blossoming American cocktail culture. After bar hopping in Boston, he noted, and I quote here, The stranger is initiated into the mysteries of gin sling, cocktail, sangaree, mint julep, sherry cobbler, timber doodle, in other rare drinks. So it's quite a rare pedigree on this one. And actually, just for the cocktail geeks out there, the Timber Doodle, nobody has ever actually been able to recreate. These others they have, but not the Timber Doodle, and I really want to try one. But anyway, to get to the mechanics, unlike our recent blood and sand experience, there was no specialty ingredients here like the cherry liqueur that uh, Tim had a difficult time finding. This recipe is all stuff that you can almost certainly get in any local grocery store or wine store, depending on where you live. So here's what you're going to need. Four ounces of sherry, one tablespoon of superfine sugar or simple syrup, two orange slices, and a few cherries if you're the garnishing type. So first you're going to muddle together the orange slices and the sugar or syrup. And for those unfamiliar, that just means you're going to mash the two of them together in the bottom of the glass with a spoon or a muddler if you have one. Then you're going to add your sherry and you are going to stir. Now, given the time period, I'm not sure that there would have been ice readily available, but I definitely recommend it here, especially on a hot summer night like it was tonight when uh, you needed something a little bit refreshing. If it's your fancy, you throw on a few seasonal berries as a garnish, and voila, you'll be ready for the next fox hunt or whatever other fun you have in mind. 
Very nice, Chris. And uh, even though the, the ingredients were theoretically easier to find tonight, I went into my store and I looked all around the, the liquor, liquor section and couldn't find sherry anywhere. And of course, I've known sherry. I've tasted sherry before, but I've never actually shopped for sherry. So couldn't find it anywhere. I glanced around the wine section and didn't see it. So I Googled and I said, where would I find sherry in my grocery store? And they directed me to the vinegar section where you will buy cooking sherry. I walked out of the store with a bottle of cooking sherry, texted Chris and said, this is the right stuff, right? And a few minutes later, he said, heck no, go back by the port in the wine section and find some sherry. So I went back to the store and picked up some real sherry and luckily did not taste that cooking sherry in my cocktail tonight. So learned a lesson from this whole experience. And hopefully you'll find a good use for the cooking sherry. (laughs) I'm sure we can broil something in that. We'll see how it goes. All right. Thanks, Chris. Let's talk about some games we've been playing to start with. Adam, have you been playing anything new this week? I have been playing something new, Tim, and it is Smartphone Inc. I mean, look at this game. Look at the cover of this game. It's a dude with a beard looking at a tablet. It's more boring than trading in the Mediterranean. Just look outside and you see these dudes walking around. Like, who cares about dudes walking around downtown LA? So that's what kept me away from this game for so long. But... I open it up, set it up. It has, first of all, you open up this board. It's a dual layer game board. It has slots for cubes and for buildings. It has a nice, beautiful map with these network routes all up on there. It has slots for little tiles that you can buy that you earn, uh, little patents at the bottom, and then little technologies, little bonuses that go along once you develop these patents or develop these technologies. And that's all involved with a variable setup. You can slot these little powers into the bottom and they fit so beautifully and so nice everything everything about this game is just so streamlined and pleasant to play so there's five rounds there's like eight actions each round and they're very easy to figure out it's very system a lot of the stuff is kind of simultaneous uh the winner is the one who has the most money at the end again if this theme doesn't put you to sleep if you can get past that this game is just fantastic and that's smartphoning I ended up buying the expansion for this too. It's a little mini map of North America and uh, it's better for two or three players if you want to do the little the little expansion there. Anyway, I'm going to try to push this one on us as soon as I can because it's great. Glowing recommendation and be, would be happy to play it. I mean, I you played a game about Victorian England with me tonight, so I guess I can play a game about smartphone manufacturing. Sure, why not? But I'm curious, Adam, so what is it that drew you to the game? Because you're right. I mean, it's not the most obviously engrossing theme. So what is it that pulled you in? So I first heard about it, I don't know, six, seven months ago, and somebody was just glowing about it, kind of the same way I am right now. And I was like, huh, whatever, look at this thing. I saw it on Kickstarter, and I can't do it. I can't do it. Then I heard more and more good things about it. And I was like, well, these are opinions of people that I respect. They're other opinions. They like games that I enjoy very much. Um, it has has area control, it has economics, it has player interaction, it has all the things I like. So the more and more I heard about it, I was like, all right, I will give it a shot. Found it at the local game store, picked it up, and it worked fantastic for me. That's awesome. Uh, Chris, you've been playing anything new? Yeah, well, and not exactly new, but we've been playing a lot of games. Actually, that's the, um, the exciting thing for me this week is just how much game playing has been happening in my household. That's not something that we have historically done, but uh, I think we seem to have had a uh, broken a log jam here, and all of a sudden there's been a lot of games we're playing. And it's actually been thrilling to me because, you know, we obviously play games all the time. I think we all appreciate the, the benefits of them. But one of the things that I've noticed is just, you know, playing with my family is just how, what a nice way it is to spend time enjoying each other's company, having a drink, having a good time, not sitting in front of a television. I mean, that's probably, you know, of course, duh, you know, 101 to everybody that's listening to this podcast. But like I said, in our family, it's not something we've historically done. But we've been re or I've been re uh, engaging with so many games that I've had playing with my family that it's actually been kind of thrilling. We played probably three or four games of Terraforming Mars and I've lost like every single one. I don't think I've won a game of Tapestry yet. It's like my number one game. And I'm like, I'm getting my bucket every single time, which is depressing, but fun in the fact that I actually get to play it. And the thing that was most exciting to me, my game of the week, get ready for this one. It's Sorry. My son, my nine-year-old son, who has never had much of an interest in playing games, I even got him some of the you know, really great high-quality ones like Stone Myers, uh, My Little Scythe. No interest. 
But for some reason this week, he pulled out the Sorry Box. And we started playing that and had such a fun time. Actually, I had completely forgotten just how much actual strategy there is in, in the game of Sorry. I mean, it's not, you know, you know, there's obviously a lot of, of luck too. But there was more going on there than, you know, I would normally think. And just having him sort of experience that and have fun and have that become part of our gaming regime was just an absolute thrill to me. So I'm I'm having a great week, a couple of weeks. That's awesome. My um my daughter likes sorry too. And you know she's I've taught her some like little bit heavier games, uh, you know, strategy games, kind of more modern stuff, Everdell. But she does go back to the more straightforward and simple games that they, she definitely gravitates towards them. And I think that's just an element of brain development at that age. Obviously different kids are going to be different. But it's just more fun for them to just be able to kind of enjoy this activity that they're doing with their family and the excitement that comes up without having to think hard about it or have to feel bad about it. My daughter always says my favorite game is Everdell because it makes me think so hard and makes me <laughs> like makes my brain hurt. But then she doesn't want to go back and play it all the time because it also creates you know some challenges mm-hmm. for us. Like a, it's not just a fun experience. We're sorry generally. You know that you don't have to feel bad when somebody knocks you out because it was just luck, and you don't really have to stress too much about your decisions. There, there's a couple of choices you can make, but it's it's pretty straightforward. So there's still a real value in some of those classic games that I think a lot of you know strategy gamers are like kind of hobbyist just put off and say, yeah, that stuff's garbage. But it depends on the audience. It depends on who's playing and what they're trying to get out of the the game. So, yeah, I am so envious of you guys. I look forward to the day so much when I can play any kind of board game with my kids. I cannot wait. So that's awesome to hear about Chris. And uh, again, very envious. Fantastic. The day is coming soon. And and I'd be remiss if I did not mention, in fact, my son specifically said when you talk to Adam and Tim tonight, tell them that I'm up on you two games to one. So <laughs> it, it, it is a fact. He is currently leading the household league in sorry. So nice job, kiddo. So I've got just one thing to mention that I played for the first time. I'm so frustrated that this happened right after our episode on board game expansions. But I finally got to play the expansion for Viticulture, Tuscany expansion. This expansion is so great, you guys. It does all the things that I love about an expansion. Okay, so I'm just going to quickly get into the three mechanisms, kind of the three features of the game. Number one, it replaces the original board game, the original game board. The original game board, you had two different seasons on it, right? You had the wake-up track printed on the one side. You had the income printed on the other side. It's changed into four different seasons of worker placement spaces. So it took like the 10 spaces that were in two seasons adds a couple more and creates like three spaces or four spaces in four different seasons. The uh, wake-up track now, when you pick a section, you're going to get a different reward for each season that you go into. So the higher you're on the track, you might not get any rewards or you might only get one in one season. But as you get down, you're going to get more and more rewards. So the wake-up track is even more important. But of course, if you're the first one to wake up, to you know wake up in every season, you're going to get more benefits because you're going to get to hit those more limited spaces more quickly. Really cool there. One of the thing about the game board that just kind of changes how the original one works is that in the two-player game with the base game board, you, you never get bonuses. You're always going to a space where you either get the thing or you can't get it unless you use your Grande Worker. In this one, some of the spaces do have a bonus for going there first, even in a one- or two-player game. So that's a fun little addition for less than three players. And then there's a little area control element. One of the actions you can take is putting your influence tokens out on this little map of Italy and each region where you place a token, you get uh, an immediate benefit. So you can just like get a card of a certain color or get some, get a point or whatever. But then at the end of the game, depending on how many, whoever has control of a region, you're going to get either one or two points per region. And, you know, a little bit of competition as well as getting immediate benefits. You're also competing for those things. All really great elements to the game board. Two more things. It adds um, these unique worker types And there's like 10 cards that are each different type of worker. So at the beginning of the game, you deal out two of them randomly. And then you put the little female screen printed gray worker on one of them and the male screen printed gray worker on the other one. And then everybody has one female and one male special worker that they can purchase during the game. You can purchase them the same way you would purchase normal workers, but they cost $1 more. Each game, they're going to have different effects and they're really fun effects. So like one of them might be when you place this worker, you can pull another worker 
back from the same season that you just played it in. Or when you place this worker, you can take a bonus, even if it's not available to you, even if it's not, a, not available at your player count. So really fun to add that. It's really easy to, to track which worker does which. Doesn't cost a lot of overhead, but really adds a fun element and changes up the strategy in the game. And then lastly, it adds the structure cards. So, you know, in the base game, you can just build some very specific structures that are laid out on your board. You can still build those, but now there's a whole stack of like 100 different cards that you have one little structure board kind of attaches next to your main, your regular player board. And there are a couple places you can buy these orange structure cards. When you have them in your hand, then you can pay for them what, the same way you would build a structure normally. So you build this extra structure on your sideboard and it gives you some ongoing effect. So just a huge variety in the different structures that you can build in the game now. So all just really easy elements to add in. I would honestly like even teach the game with these elements because they're not complicated but they add a lot of fun new choices to a game that already had a lot of fun choices. So I really love this expansion. I'm glad I picked it up. It was um, well worth it and looking forward to playing it some more. But I think this would have knocked the new Discoveries expansion for Underwater Cities off my number five spot if I had um, had played this before we went before we made the podcast last week. So for anyone listening, I'm taking that back and my, my list is updated now. Hey, Tim, does this feel like one of those expansions where you're going to kind of go back and forth between the original and the expansion? Or is this going to be one where you just you always play with Tuscany? I think I would always play with it because it doesn't add, you know, the game has enough things to teach, but this doesn't really add too much to it. I I don't think Um, so. You know, maybe I don't know. I'll have to see that when I actually teach the game again in the future. But my feel is that I would just always pull it out and teach it this way because it doesn't really add that much complication but it does add more fun decisions as you're as you're playing the game. So, all right. Did you guys have anything new that you're excited about? I, I really don't this week. So, um, anything you guys wanted to chat about? Nope. Just waiting for that uh, that new Sorry expansion to come out. No, actually, that's 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 not true. I actually did this week. Uh, it's not new, but it's new to me at least in hard copy. But for years and years and years, I've loved playing the Cthulhu Realms app on my ipad which is for those who haven't played it before basically star realms with cthulhu and a couple of slightly different mechanisms but you know finally after you years of playing the app i was like how come i don't own the hard copy game and so i it was like 25 dollars or something like that on amazon and i bought it and it came in the mail and just holding this thing in my hands after all these years of playing the app it just it felt so it felt so satisfying nice have you actually played it yet like no, man, I'm not sure. I, I don't know that I ever will. I, <laughs> I, love, I love playing it on the app, but uh, it felt good to have a hard copy too. Maybe I will bust it out. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'm excited this week that I am going to get to go visit Chris in Portland this, this coming weekend, and hopefully we get some good gaming in. So uh, looking forward to that a lot. Otherwise, that's all I got. We can wrap up this episode. If any of you would like to chat with us about the games we've been playing or the games we've talked about, feel free to hit us up on social media. Um, you can find us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes or at, on Facebook at board game hot takes. We'd love to hear from you until next week. Take care. everybody. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.